Morning, everyone. All right, so we are continuing in this series on discipleship called Come, Follow Me. And so we're coming to the end of the seven-part series. This is part number six of seven. So if you're visiting or, or new or you've missed a couple weeks, you can always catch up on the weeks that you've missed. Um, those messages are online. But just a quick little summary here. Um, first, we considered what we are. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You're a follower of Jesus. So a disciple is a learner and a follower. And Jesus is our teacher, and he's our Lord. He's our master, right? So we first started there. Second, we, we counted the cost. So if you read the Gospels regularly, Jesus is calling people to count the cost if they're going to follow him. If you want to come after me, he says in Mark 8, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So that can sound like really a hard message, and it is a sober cost that we need to weigh, but it's really only a call to die to what's killing us. So it's our selfishness, our pride, our trying to be our own God or our own Savior or looking to everyone and everything else other than God to be our God or our Savior. And so we die to that. We deny our selfish, prideful, foolish selves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, trusting him. So we die to that path of folly, of sin, follow Jesus on the path of life. Because if, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you'll find it. So even though it's sobering, it's actually a really encouraging call. He wants us to live. So he is the only Savior. We can't save ourselves. He's the only one who can atone for our sins. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we've got to deny any other way to heaven. We can't make it there on our good works, and we can't trust any other Savior. No one and no thing is going to get us there but Jesus. And when you have that new life, when you've repented and you're trusting in Jesus and you're following him, that new life is lived with a new purpose. So we consider that next. What is the purpose that Jesus has for us if he's our master, our teacher? We live for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what Jesus did when he was on planet Earth. And if we follow him, that's our purpose as well. And so we lay our lives down for the good of others. That path is a path of love. So he said, this command I give to you, a new command, that you love one another as I have loved you. So living for the glory of God and the good of others is kind of like the beacon lighting the way. And the path itself is love, loving our brothers and sisters, and loving those that don't yet know Jesus as well. So all that can seem like a lot, pretty daunting. So last week we considered where does the power come from to live like this? And it comes from the Spirit of God. We need God's power to be able to follow Jesus. We're talking about more than just Christian niceness. You can be nice in your own strength, especially if you have a certain kind of upbringing, or maybe you grew up in the South. Like, you can be nice. That's no shot on the people in the South. We, we love people from the South. I'm just saying, they can be really good at being nice. In fact, we could use a little bit of that here in Wilmington. But anyway, 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of stuff, the kind of love that's a miracle that's only explainable by the power of the gospel, by the work of the Spirit within us. That's what we're after, right? Not just niceness, supernatural love. And that's only going to happen by the power of the gospel at work in our lives. We can love because he first loved us. We're empowered by the Spirit to live that life of love. So these final two weeks now are going to be following Jesus with his people this week, together with his people. Next week is following Jesus into the world to love those who don't know him yet. Okay? So this morning, we're going to talk about the church. Jesus' people walking together with one another in love. So let me just ask you a question here as we get started. Why do you come to church? And when I say church, I mean the people. Okay, why do you come to this gathering? The church is not the building. The church is the people. Why do you come to the weekly gathering? Is it just habit? Like, how would you answer someone if they asked you why you come. Do you have any convictional reasons for doing this? Do you have any reasons that sustain you through the ebbs and flows of how you're feeling? Because, <laughs> you know, you can admit it. Sometimes you don't feel like coming. Anybody? I mean, any amens there? Okay. So, so the point is, if it's just left up to how I feel about it, I might be pretty spotty with my attendance. Or if there's obstacles or whatever, like, do you have convictions for why this is important? And the other reason is, why do you come in the sense of what are we here to do? What's this for? Why, why do we gather like this? Do you have an answer for that? Do you have reasons? So that it's actually biblical conviction that's driving you to do this every week, and not only to do this as in show up, but do this as far as knowing what you're supposed to do when you get here. I mean, obviously, our life together is more than just these hours on Sunday morning, but these hours on Sunday morning are pretty important. And then they bleed out into our community groups and into our relationships and our encouragement and accountability and stirring one another up that happens outside of here. But the point is, why? as far as reasons, and what? What are we supposed to do? So if we're following Jesus, how, how's he going to lead us in relation to one another, in relation to the church? You see where we're going here? Because if you follow Jesus, he will not lead you to be a lone ranger. He will not. I mean, lone ranger had Tonto, so he wasn't alone. But you know, you know what the expression means. Lone Ranger Christians are unhealthy, abnormal. Discipleship is not a solo pursuit. It's never just me and Jesus. As much as spending time with Jesus, you know, walking with him in prayer, in the word, as important it's never just me and Jesus. He never leads you to be a loner. Discipleship is not something 
that you simply do alone, me following Jesus. That's being a disciple. Discipleship is a community project. The church is kind of like a discipleship co-op. Do you view it that way? Does that seem to make sense? Does that resonate? So our passage is Ephesians 4 this morning. Whitney read it um, a few minutes ago. And so this passage is going to show us how we as the church are to walk together in love following Jesus. All right? So you're going to want to turn there. Um, It would be a little bit too... We're going to focus basically on verses 1 to 16. We'll look at a few other passages. We'll look at the context in Ephesians as well. So you're going to want to have Ephesians open here so that you can track and follow along. So... um, You can find it again on page 977. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. So turn there to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Point number one, how to walk together following our Lord. How we must walk together following our Lord. So Paul writes to the Ephesians. He's laid out all this beautiful gospel doctrine, which we're going to consider a few verses in just a minute. And then he turns the corner here in chapter 4, and he really focuses on application in the next three chapters. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. Do you see the connection here between a a series on discipleship following Jesus and Ephesians 4? Walking is an important metaphor in the Bible. It's an important metaphor in the book of Ephesians. And it makes sense. You can see how it goes together with this idea of following Jesus. We are following him. We're walking in his footsteps. Okay? So I urge you to walk. It's, It's a manner of life. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So just to see how important this theme is in Ephesians, look back at chapter 2. In my Bible, I think it's, it's just on the, the uh, opposing page there. Look at 2.1. This is the testimony for every Christian before Christ and after Christ here in chapter 2. This is our story. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. This is all of us, spiritually dead, cut off from the life of God in which you once walked. You see it? There's that walking language. So you were dead in your sins in which you once walked. This was your way of life. That's the point. Following the course of this world. You see? It's like discipleship. You were a disciple, a faithful disciple of the, of the world and of Satan. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Thankfully, look at verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then look at 2.8. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his 
workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were walking on the path of destruction, disciples of Satan, there you go, following the course of this world, dead in our sins, like the walking dead. And aren't you glad that he made us alive together with Christ? We realized that we were headed to hell, that we were living in darkness, opened our eyes, we turned away from that, we started following Jesus. Saved by grace, through faith, all of a sudden we see Jesus for who he is, the only Savior. We're made alive, born again, and we start following him. And even the works, the good works that we walk in, he's prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Because again, the power comes from him. We can lean into him for that. So we don't take our cues from the world, we take our cues from Jesus, our master. So look at Ephesians 4.17. Again, see this theme. Just flip the page. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, the nations do, in the futility of their minds. Or look down at 5.8. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then one more, 15, 515. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're learning a new way to walk, right? A new way of life, following Jesus. And we do it together. So just so that you see how the walking and the calling are tied together, look down at Ephesians 4.32. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. If you have been forgiven this infinite debt, how can you be choking your brother or sister over their sin that is a pittance compared to your sin against God. You see? So if we are unforgiving and bitter and hold grudges, that's so like dissonant with our calling because we've been forgiven so much, right? So walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5 again. It was 432, 5, 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you can see how this is, you know, a way to unpack this walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, so we should walk as children of the light. We were called out of slavery to self into the freedom of love, and so we should love as God in Christ has loved us. We were called out of condemnation and hopelessness into justification. We're made right with God and hope. We have an eternal hope, a hope of glory. So we don't have to be completely crushed with despair even if we go through really hard patches because no one and nothing can kill our living hope. 
So this is a call, in a sense, to be who you are, to become who you already are. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You are a beloved. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, if you're following him, you are a beloved, adopted, redeemed son or daughter of the king of the universe, the merciful, loving, patient, kind, gracious king of kings and lord of lords. So let's walk in such a way that displays how great his grace is and has been in our lives. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Not in order to earn the calling, but in a way that displays and shows how gracious that calling is, how much power is in that calling to change us. So what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Look at verse 2. With all humility, so we're back in, in Ephesians 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So first off, if we're going to walk together as Jesus' people in love, then we walk with all humility and gentleness with one another. So I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Remember our calling. So all superiority complexes, all inferior, inferior, <laughs> inferiority complexes are done away with. Nobody's better than anybody else. Isn't that great? Like, it doesn't matter your education, your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ. We're all in need equally of God's grace. The calling is from outside. It's not like I was worthy enough to get included, you know, to get, you know, pick for Jesus' team. So you might have been that last person that was picked, you know, in junior high. <laughs> it's not like that. I'm going to get the best football player or the best kickball player on my team, and then you were like the last one. No, none of us, we all stunk. <laughs> and Jesus called us all to be on his team. So it's all by grace. So that humbles us. It should make us gentle toward one another. So it's our master, the one who called us, who said, come to me all your weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Learn from me. <laughs> He's our teacher, and he embodied it. So if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we are going to do so with all humility and gentleness, just like our master. With patience. Next. So again, let's not hold this out at arm's length. This is, this is for us to really look in. You know, we're not here by accident. God actually wants to speak to us this morning. So are we, are you, am I walking with patience with the people in this place? Do you ever get impatient with brother or sister? Annoyed? You ever wonder what's underneath the annoyance? 
What's underneath the impatience? So I don't know about you, but I am slow to learn and quick to forget. Aren't we all prone to wander? So if I'm stubborn and prone to wander, if I'm honest with myself about my own heart, then when I see (laughs) slowness to learn in somebody else, I'm going to be patient with that person. But if I think I'm better than that person, you know, we need to go back to that previous one, with all humility. If I think I'm better than that person, I might just be like tapping my toe, like, come on, what's wrong with you people? And then you start to like pull away. That's not going to help the unity and the love and the oneness, right? I think sometimes we're kind of, we want God and others to be very patient and understanding with us, but sometimes we don't particularly extend that to other people. It's kind of a weird double standard that we can do. So it's easy to get frustrated, impatient, tired of things not happening the way we want them, when we want them, even in the church. And that kind of impatience is not going to unify or build up the church. It's going to divide and tear down. So we've got to stop and slow down and consider our calling. How has God dealt with us? Has he been patient with us? Is he patient with us? Anybody? Incredibly patient. Aren't you glad for that? So if, if we need God's patience, then wouldn't we also then, shouldn't we also then extend that patience to our brothers and sisters? So if we consider our calling and his forbearance with us, then we're going to be humbled, our fuse is going to grow, and we're going to be patient with others that we might, in our own selfishness, just want to leave in the dust and not deal with. So let's keep going. Bearing with one another in love. Again, personalize it. Look around. (laughs) Don't stare too long at the person you're really struggling to bear with and love, but, you know, we're all going to make mistakes here, okay? People in your community group or in your ministry are going to say stupid things. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to sin against each other. We all have. We all will again. We're going to need to bear with one another in love. And it says, bear with one another in love, not with clenched teeth. Not just putting up with one another, but actually doing this in love. Do you see? Okay, last week. We're back to last week, right? Power. I need grace for this. I need the Spirit's help. I need to be filled up with God's love so that I can bear with my brothers and sisters in love. So again, we consider our calling. Everything is shaped by our calling Oh, how the Father bears with us in love. He knows our sin and our stubbornness. Even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows we're but dust. And he loves us. He is, like, wonderfully stubborn with that love. The more that we know our calling, what's ours in Christ, the more we'll be enabled to walk with others in love. So the gospel, the truth of the gospel 
shapes the culture in the church. It should, right? So you, you can imagine if we talk about, oh, the grace and mercy and forgiveness and patience of God, and then we're nitpicky and critical and short-fused with one another, we're undoing with our culture what we're saying we believe with our creed. You see how important this is? See how important it is for our discipleship to, to kind of really filter into our relationships and the community that's formed here in the body? So some years ago, we did a series called Gospel Culture. Some of you were here for that. Gospel doctrine should produce gospel culture. We don't want to undo with our lives what we profess with our lips. We want to instead adorn, illustrate with our lives what we say with our lips or with our creed, right? So this is hugely important. And the passage goes on to explain why it's so important to walk like this and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we are one. Okay? Let's look at this next section here, verses 4 to 6. We should be eager to maintain. We don't create the unity. The Spirit does. We have to protect it and preserve it because there's lots of threats to the unity, right? Our pride, our selfishness, and impatience and all of that. So we want to be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. Here's why all of this should be taking place, because there's one body. We should be unified. And one Spirit, just as you were called, there's that calling word again, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see the Trinitarian reference in there? You see it? One Spirit in verse 4. One Lord, Jesus, in verse 5. One God and Father of all, verse 6. Why? Is that just for fun? No, the reason why we are called to be uni unified and one is because God is one. We are very diverse, kind of motley crew, right? Well, God is Trinity, but He is unity. So we are diverse, but we are called to be one. One God, three persons, a bunch of persons called to be one by His grace and for His glory. Okay? So because God is one and three, and we, though we're diverse, should be one. Jesus died for this kind of unity. In fact, look back at Ephesians 2 so you can see the same theme that was struck earlier. Look at Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time, prior to becoming a Christian, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the people of God, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Back then, huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. And by the gospel, they could become one people, one people of God. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you can see how important this unity is to God. Jesus died for it to make us one. And so we should be eager, not apathetic, eager. We can't be indifferent to this. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is going to take some work. If there's some, okay, if this happens in your home, if this happens with a friend, marriage, friendship, with a child, if something gets in between because one sins against the other and you just ignore it, what happens? You drift, right? Somebody's got to be eager to maintain, to protect, to promote the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're going to need to do that. This is going to take some work. Is that part of our expectation? Do we, do we know that's what we signed up for here? It's worth it. We're called to this. So we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't create the unity, like I said, but we're tasked to protect it and maintain it. We're like guardians. We're like watchmen. We're going to watch out for the threats that Satan would love to come in and just get a foothold and drive us apart and, you know, have us be nitpicky about the color of the carpet. I can bring that up safely right now. But you know how this happens in the church, and it's happened here. We can get really opinionated over really peripheral things. Right? Am I the only one that's ever seen that? Okay. So we don't want that to happen. We want the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So if we give way to the opposite, think through that list, what's the opposite? If we give way to pride and a harsh, domineering way of life, my way or the highway, rather than humility and gentleness, if we are impatient and critical and judgmental with one another rather than bearing with one another in love and with patience, we're going to kill our unity. We're going to fracture it and break it apart. So Ephesians 4 makes it really clear. This isn't optional. This is essential. We can't attack the unity, and we also can't be indifferent to the unity. We need to be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. So the strength, the health of our community and our unity as a family is the responsibility of us all. Okay? The strength, the health, the unity of your community group squarely rests on each and every community group member's shoulders, not just the leaders. The health and strength of our community body dynamics in our church is on everybody's shoulders. So, We've all got to carry our own weight, kind of pull our own weight, which is where the passage goes from here. Jesus wants to equip us, all of us, to use our gifts for the building up of the body, the unity of the body, the health of the body, the growth of the body. We need to do this together. We walk together in love, equipped by Jesus, 
building each other up in love. So let's look, secondly, why we must walk together equipped by our Lord in verses 7 to 14. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul from here goes to quote Psalm 68. And you you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out how all this works together. We're not going to get down in the weeds and details here. So we'll just quote it. I'll make a quick comment to help um, orient us. Therefore, it says, quoting Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay, so Paul quotes Psalm 68, which is a passage that refers to the march of Yahweh, of God, to conquer the nations and establish his kingship. So the idea is when you conquer and you ascend to assume your rule, you can either use your victory for self-glory purposes. Aren't I great? I'm so strong and I conquered the nations. Or you can bless others with your power, with your kingship. Jesus was exalted, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he used his victory to bless and give gifts. Okay? Here's some of the gifts. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, okay? Church is built on that foundation. If you look back at chapter 220 of Ephesians, you see that. The evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So who's doing the work of ministry? Louder. Be bold. Us. Who's the us? Saints. So, of course, we're all called to ministry, but do you see it? This is not the professionals do the ministry and, you know, you just are spectators. No, actually, this is equipping so that you can go and do the ministry. So all of the teaching in the Word, this is not the sum total of ministry. This is just the beginning. And each of us has different gifts, right? And you can do things that I can't do, and vice versa. Like if we were all an eye, where would the sense of smell be? If we were all an ear, where would the, you know, you need a kneecap. You need a hamstring. You need some lateral obliques. Okay, everything is important here. So all of us get equipped and we all do the ministry. Is that your orientation? Is that what you think about coming to church and being a part of the church and living as the church? So you are to be equipped by certain gifted folks in order to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is equipped to build up the body of Christ. Do you see that? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So good teaching to give us good instincts and good theology so that we can sift out the good from the bad. We don't get led astray by false teaching. And then we go equipped to get it done, to go do the work of the ministry. So do you see how gifts and church community is essential to growth, all of us growing? And that responsibility is on all of us. Where's Jesus going to lead us? Not into Lone Ranger, you know, Christianity in the woods, but right into the mess and stuff of relationships and loving one another and using our gifts to build each other up so that the body builds itself up in love. So we cannot say to other members of the body, I don't need you. You can't say that. Read 1 Corinthians 12. You can't say that. The eye needs the hand. The hand needs the eye. Not all our eyes, not all our our hands. So we all need to find out what our gifts are and use them for the good of the body. That's all of us. I don't care how young you are. If you are in Christ, you've got gifts and you can use them. I don't care how old you are. I don't, I don't, I don't, I hope nobody is saying I've done my time. And you know what? You've said it. I'm calling you out because I've heard that has been said. It hasn't actually been said to me, but I've heard people saying that. So nobody should say that. Oh, I've done my time. What are you talking about? You've got all kinds of experience doesn't mean you have to sign up and fill this slot, but you can use your experience, the grace and the gifts that have been given to you to pour into other people. We don't ever retire from ministry, okay? So we all should be using our gifts. Lord, how do you, what are my gifts? You can try some things, okay? And there seems to be some fruitfulness, some affirmation. This is This is how I'm wired. This is how God's gifted me to serve the body. And you use it for the good of the body. So following Jesus leads us away from consumerism, away from being a spectator, onto the field, getting our hands dirty, getting our uniform dirty. I love this quote by Teddy Roosevelt. He wasn't speaking of the church, but I think it's applicable. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who have never known neither victory nor defeat. Is there any more worthy cause than the church, the body of Christ? Jesus shed his blood. He gave himself up for her, for us in love. His blood is infinitely precious and he shed it for us. The only thing he promised to build is a church. I will build my church. So this is a cause that can't fail, even though, you know, individual churches can ebb and flow and whatever. But 
this is a cause worth giving ourselves to. So we can all use our time, our talent, our gifts, our money, our everything for the good of the body and the spread of the gospel. So the strength, the health of our church, of our body, the maturity, the building up of the body rests squarely on every shoulder, right? Not just the shoulder of the leaders, even though we need to bear that responsibility willingly. So where are your gifts? If you want to talk about that, if you want to talk about opportunities, come talk to me. But we all should use our gifts for the good of the body. So here's how we'll close this out here. There's two more points I know. Those were the two longest ones, the first ones. I want you to see how important speech is to the building up of the body, and then we're going to talk just briefly about, is this your mentality? So first off, point number three, walking the talk, maturing into our Lord. This is really interesting. Paul is talking about all of us using our gifts for the building up of the body, and then he makes a really big deal about our speech. So look at verse 15. Speaking, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see how speaking the truth in love is like the headwaters of, of this effect? Like, how does the body build itself up in love. We need to be speaking the truth in love. Words really matter. Not just words. Words that are backed up with love and service and whatever, but let's not downplay words. It's really important to encourage one another, isn't it? It's really important to confess our sins to one another, isn't it? It's really important to like share the gospel, remind each other of the gospel, isn't it? Super important if the church is going to be built up. So we need to speak the truth in love. That means we're going to sometimes have to confront each other, love each other enough to say the hard thing, ask the tough questions. Look down at verse 25. He says the same thing. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Or down in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's such an important job description for each one of us. I can give grace to those who hear, or I can tear them down, or I can just be indifferent and just ignore people. No, I can give grace. Like Saturday night prayer, Lord, help me give some grace to somebody tomorrow to know just what they need to hear. Lead me to the right person to ask the right question and listen to what they have to say. And maybe something that I was reading this week will be an encouragement to them. Because I'm not going to be a spectator. I want to speak the truth in love. I want to use my gifts for the good of the body. I want to build itself up in love so we build ourselves up. So do you see how important our speech is? And then finally, point number four, this discipleship mentality. 
is this your mentality? Kind of just average week, average month. This is what Jesus is going to lead us to do if we follow him. He is going to lead us to disciple, to invest. So who are you discipling? Who are you investing in? And, and next week we'll talk about go and make disciples of all the nations. But this week it's, are we walking around this place and doing relationships in this place with this kind of mentality where we are disciples discipling one another? We need to build each other up. We need to help each other. So I should be seeking to intentionally invest in other people's, in other people. Is that your mentality? So you could say, well, I, I don't really have somebody like that that I, I, I don't know. How do you start something like that? Well, you guys know who Rosaria Butterfield is? Some of you do. Um, lady that, anyway, powerful testimony of how God saved her. The guy and his wife, the pastor and his wife who led her to Christ, his name is Ken Smith. Her name is Floyd, I think. Um, he wrote a little book called With Him, and it's patterned on, you know, remember when Jesus, I think it's in Mark 3, Jesus was going to call the disciples to himself. He was going to choose 12 to be his apostles. And it says there, he called them to be with him. Not just to do things, but to be with him and to do things, right? So there's a little book called With Him, and here's, here's what he says. Um, when I've been asked, where do you get these people? Like people that you invest in, people that you disciple. I have simply said, on my knees. Where, where do you get these people? On my knees. And then I watch for them. So if this hasn't been normal for you to have this mentality of discipleship, I need to be investing in other people. Then you can start, even if you don't know where to start, because you can get on your knees and say, God, would you help me to, maybe there's just one person I can start to invest in. Help me to follow you so that I actually have something to share. Because <laughs> if, if we're not following Jesus, we're not going to be leading anybody else that way. But I want to grow. I want to follow you faithfully. And I want to help somebody else down the same path. So would you please just lead me to that person? Would you open that door and make it happen? Put somebody on my heart that I can start encouraging. So obviously if you're if you have kids, you can start there. We should be discipling our children. For parents, certainly discipleship of your children falls squarely on your shoulders. There's lots of help in the church, which is a wonderful blessing, but we can't run from or avoid this responsibility, and we sure, certainly shouldn't just seek to outsource it. Responsibility for discipling our kids is on parental shoulders. Community group, look around there. Church as a whole. Titus 2 has this pattern, older women with younger women, older men, younger men. So this series is not merely for definitions of discipleship and descriptions of discipleship. Oh, now I know what a disciple is. Now what I know what discipleship is for. The point of the series is that we would actually live this out as disciples and that we would be discipling one another. So let's do it. Anybody? Let's do it. Yes? All right. Okay. Let's pray. We're going to, let's for the sake of time, 
um, just passing that final song so we can go right to community discussion um, for a few minutes of sharing here. God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that we would lay aside everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, and I pray that we would run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. I pray that we would walk with Jesus, following Jesus, together, helping each other. Give us this mentality. Help us to be intentional, thoughtful, prayerful about it. Help us to live this out by your grace and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.